Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. excited. We're kicking off a brand new series called Gracious Living, and it is entirely taken from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend the next few weeks uh, tearing into the Sermon on the Mount and its content, and today we're going to dive into the Beatitudes, and we're going to do a lot of Greek grammar, and we're going to muck around in language, and it'll be so fun. I, it's just, it's just going to be amazing. I don't know if you know this, but uh, uh, years ago, there were uh, things called finishing schools. Anybody know about that? So uh, there there aren't as many anymore. Evidently, uh, our sociological processes and some cultural transitions have uh, sort of made them uh, not popular in the culture. Uh, so there's not as many of them as there used to be. And there used to be very, there's still varying degrees of these things. You know, there's things you can go to in the afternoon and you can kind of get your sense. But the, but the actual finishing schools were in-residence programs for largely young women. Uh, young women who had graduated from college, uh, you know, usually came from a pedigreed kind of family. And they had, you know, quite a, a future before them, well-connected usually. Uh, and they would go off for a period of time, usually six months to a year, to a finishing school in residence to learn the proper etiquette of being uh, a lady. And, uh, you know, um, very important things that were studied there. Um, where does the oyster fork go, for example? Uh, did you know there was an oyster fork? I <laughs> didn't know. And, uh, you know, there are, I don't know if you know this, there are certain cultures that... Uh, uh, different kinds of flowers are offensive to those cultures. Imagine if you ended up the ambassador's wife and you didn't know, and you put out the wrong flowers, you know, and, and so uh, finishing schools. And uh, they were quite costly, and it was a very large commitment. And today, uh, there really aren't very many of them anymore. Um, and the reason we're talking about it is because I came across an article the other day about one of the last ones that exists, which is located in Switzerland. And it has an international faculty, world-renowned faculty, that uh, spends time helping uh, young women know the things that they need to know in order to function in society. A 23-year-old from Nigeria who lives in London said, people notice. I think most likely they wouldn't say anything to you, but they'll leave thinking, wow, she's really refined. A Canadian CEO expressed a similar sentiment, though with a little more anxiety. There are unspoken rules in business and in life. Our success is based at least a little bit on how much we violate those rules. And then she paused and added, this is a very safe place for me to practice. I just want you to think for a minute about that, that, that still today there are people taking months out of their life to go somewhere and learn the fine points of what it means to be a part of society. And they feel the weight of that, the responsibility of that. And when I think about that, I think, what about us who are called to be the kingdom of God? Where is it that we begin to refine and put together what it is that God has called us and invited us to do and to become? Where is our finishing school where, where we are... Setting aside time to say, no, no, I, I don't want to just do the big stuff. I don't want to just, you know, 
find salvation and be committed to Christ. And I want to do the fine-tuning. I want, to, I want to live a gracious life in the kingdom of God. I want to be a kingdom citizen with all of its implications. And I want to explore that. I want to think about what that means. I know that there are some phrases, words, attitudes that bring life and help and comfort. And there are other phrases and words and attitudes that don't. I know some of the things I do help promote the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And other things I do inspire more deliver us from evil. (laughs) So where is the finishing school for kingdom people? And then you think, well, it's the church, isn't it? I mean, that's really why we're here. Of course, this is also the recruitment center. It's also the induction center. It's also boot camp and basic training. We do primary, elementary, you know, high school education. We do secondary education. We, we have to train for both functionality and professionalism. I wonder, you know, if we are not maybe the jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> Interestingly, the scripture navigates this very well. It has been said specifically about the Gospel of John. It is a pool in which any child can wade, and an elephant and a and a a lake in which any elephant can bathe. It it its depth fits the people. Scripture fits the depth. It's speaking to those who are brand new in the faith and those who've been walking for a while. And so we come to this, and and we sort of sit down together in a space, and for the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to focus on the Sermon on the Mount because what, a, what an awesome finishing school the teachings of Jesus are in that location. And let's talk about why. The Gospel of Matthew itself is constructed in a very uh, important way, in a very deliberate way. And so when you think about who the writers of the Gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them write from a very uh, different perspective and a different idea. Three of those writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Uh, provide for us what we call the synoptic gospels because they write from the same point of view, beginning with the birth of Christ and moving their way through the life and teachings of Christ and into the death and resurrection of Christ. They're told from the same perspective. John is a distinctly different gospel, uh, beginning with a theological premise, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it constructs itself completely differently. Of those three gospel writers who share the same point of view, the synoptics, uh, they write for very different reasons. Matthew, a tax collector, a Jew, writes a very Jewish gospel. In fact, it is his intention to write a transition from the Old Testament to the New. He wants his readers, his Jewish readers, to stay with him. He doesn't want them to stop. So he writes this almost seamless narrative that ties the Old Testament narrative right into the New Testament narrative. So very early in his gospel, he's tying together. In fact, those who put the canon together ultimately in the 4th century said, you know, gospel really, the gospel of Matthew really is the best transition point, so we'll put it first, even though Matthew was probably the last gospel written and probably one of the latest books in the New Testament written at the very end of the 1st century. And so Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy in which we relate Jesus into the story of Abraham and into the story of David. We have to get his prophetic lineage lined up or the Jews are not going to follow the storyline. And he has three primary goals in talking about Messiah. He wants everyone to know that Jesus, number one, was Messiah. 
He wants him, number two, to know that he is the new Moses, that there was an old Moses, but now there's a new Moses. And Jesus is that new Moses. Number three, he's going to talk about the fact that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so he wants to, to take his Jewish audience and say, you've been anticipating prophetically Messiah. This is Messiah. He is the new Moses, and this Messiah is God with us. And he's going to identify these things. He launches himself then after those opening three chapters in which he makes that transition to bring his readers with him. He launches into the first of five sets of teachings. Uh, the gospel is divided very neatly into five segments of teaching. And each of those are thematically divided into five themes. And, and what he does is he'll give you a chapter of his theme. And then he will install multiple chapters behind that of the teachings of Jesus on that theme. So if you watch the gospel and how it unfolds, we're not going to go through the whole gospel. I just want to get you up to speed on the Sermon on the Mount. So in chapter 4, after this introductory piece, 1 through 3, we come into a conversation about the kingdom of God. And so Matthew introduces the topic. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it's all about. And then as, as chapter 5 opens, we hand it off to Jesus, who will now teach 5 through 7 all the content of the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that's a great opportunity. I mean, it seems to me if we're going to do a finishing school on what it means to be kingdom people, what an awesome place. Right here at the beginning, as Matthew has introduced the idea of kingdom, and now Jesus is going to give us this teaching. Now, a couple of things about the Sermon on the Mount. One is, it probably isn't all one sermon. It probably wasn't delivered in its entirety. Could have been, but likely because we pick up different segments of this sermon in other Gospels, we likely think that what Matthew did was he took the Sermon on the Mount and then he added some more teachings about the kingdom that Jesus had done at different times. So that's really important. It gives us a big view of a lot of things Jesus taught. And in fact, the way Matthew writes the introduction, it tells us and hints to us that this is true. So let's talk a little bit about how it is set up and some things that are happening as we launch in. First, I, I do want you to think about this. We are talking about gracious living. And we're going to talk each week about a different topic of graciousness. And today we're talking about a gracious spirit. What is the content of a gracious spirit? That you and I as kingdom people are called to be gracious people. I have never ever looked up a definition of a word that has so many synonyms. <laughs> I, I mean, it's pages and pages. Courteous, kind, pleasant, polite, civil, chivalrous, well-mannered, decorous, gentlemanly, ladylike, civilized, tactful, diplomatic, kind, kindly, kind-hearted, warm-hearted, benevolent, considerate, thoughtful, obliging, accommodating, charitable, indulgent, magnanimous, beneficent, benign, friendly, pleasant, amiable. It's, I'm not done, <laughs> but I'll quit. And then if you look further, you find that there's a distinctly Christian definition. Participating in divine grace, merciful, forgiving, compassionate, forbearing. And so when we begin to think about this idea that we are going to participate in gracious living, it's a big deal. In fact, you could almost create one more synonym, Christ-like. Christ-like living. Listen with me for a moment as we think about the opening words in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor 
in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's some things going on inside the language. If you've been around for a long, long time, you've heard me talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and you've probably heard some of this before, but it's, uh, it's the exegesis of the passage, so we're just going to do it. So to think about just for a moment the language that is incorporated here. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and he began to teach them, saying. The Greek is actually a little more complex. The NIV, as many modern translations, they've smoothed out the language a little bit so that there's an ease in the reading. But let me kind of give you what's going on. And when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and when he had sat down, it's a little different than he went on the mountainside, he sat down and he began to teach them. And when he had sat down is actually how the Greek reads here. Now that's important because it's there for a reason. The reason is it is a rabbinic saying. And the rabbinic saying means that when the, when the rabbi did the introductory work, you know, like I'm doing now, and he just talk and talk and talk, and you think, what's the point? I don't really get it. I don't know where this is going. I just, ah, I get to get to the point. When all the introductory pieces were finished, the rabbi would sit down. And then the people would know, okay, the introduction's over. He's getting to the meat of the matter now. This is why I never sit down. <laughs> awkward so it's a rabbinic saying and when he had sat down so his Jewish audience would go the rabbi has seated he's getting to the heart what he's teaching us now is the core of the teaching this is the stuff we need to hang on to everybody listen everyone be quiet gather around here it is and so it's an important piece of this teaching and when he had sat down he began to teach them the Greek is much more choppy he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying. Now, once again, it's a colloquial saying, and it matters. It's not just that he started to talk, and he opened his mouth, and he began to... This is a Greek saying. It is a Greek colloquialism, and what it means is whenever someone opened their mouth, and he opened his mouth, and he began to speak, means he's getting to the depth of his mind. <laughs> So, specifically, this phrase was often used for an oracle. If you went to an oracle who was going to speak for the gods, the phrasing of the oracle would be, the oracle came forward, and when he opened his mouth, he said. He spoke saying. The idea is that what's coming now is from the depth of the being. It's from the center of the mind. And even behind that, it's from a divine source. And so, Matthew's not using these phrases accidentally. He's pulling his audience into this space. And he's saying to them, listen, we want you to understand how this is fitting together. And when he had sat down, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this phrase in Greek is very powerful. In fact, you could phrase it in a lot of ways. You could talk about it in the term, oh, the blessedness of, which is picks up from the Aramaic, because Jesus spoke these words in Aramaic, Psalm 1-1, oh, the blessedness of those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so it's a known phrase in Aramaic, but in Greek, once he translates it, he translates it into markos. And markos is, is an idea that says this, participating in the joy of the gods. That's the Greek phrase. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who are poor in spirit. Well, that's important. Oh, the blessedness of helps us because we understand this. I don't know about you, but I grew up sort of thinking the Beatitudes were the, 
you know, if you did all these things, there was a payoff. Eventually, you'd get blessed if you were a peacemaker and poor in spirit and mourned and all that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying if you do all these things, eventually you'll get blessed. He's saying participating in the blessedness. Oh, the blessedness of. You're already, when you do this, you're already blessed. <laughs> things are happening in real time. This isn't a reward later, which I think we all, blessed are those who are persecuted because we think, oh, well, eventually I'll get a reward, but... Oh, the blessedness of participating in the joy of the gods. In fact, this word has been coined over centuries. It referred to an island in classic Greek. So somebody asked me after the first service, why did they say, oh, the, bless, oh, the joy of the gods instead of God? Well, because they were Greek. <laughs> and they had a lot of gods. And so Matthew just used the word. <laughs> He's not, you know, being pluralistic. But the word evolved over time. It used to refer to an island. It, it, it is an island and was an island. And the island in Greek, the Greek mind was sort of this idyllic place. It was this utopian place. And so everybody wanted to go to the peace of Marcos. They wanted to go there. They wanted to enjoy it. And one of the marks of the island was it was self-contained. Once you got there, everything you needed to ha for all happiness and fulfillment were there. And so it didn't need any support from the outside. It was completely self-contained. You just needed to get there, and then your life would be wonderful. And that phrase, that proper noun, becomes an adjective. And so participating in the joy of the gods, participating in this place where there is completeness, where all the needs are met, where there is happiness and peace and fulfillment and every good thing, utopian thing you can think of. These are the phrases that are being used at the opening of this deal. But that's not all. <laughs> You would expect in this sort of situation in which Jesus stands and speaks that all of this would be written in the aorist tense. The aorist tense in Greek means this happened and it was done. It's finished. It's completed. Aorist gives us a real sense of the package of what happened. So Jesus rose and he taught and then he sat down. <laughs> Boom! Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Except Matthew doesn't put it in the aorist tense, which would be proper for the action that's taking place. Instead, he puts it in the imperfect tense. On purpose, which means, and when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and when he had sat down, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Oh, the blessedness of those who are poor in heart. And he taught it again and again and again and again and over and over. The imperfect tense tells us that these are the core teachings, and they're going to happen over and over and over and over. This is the truth of the kingdom, and it will be articulated over and over and over and over so pay attention and listen close. And so now, there are just eight points. <laughs> to think about. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, it, it seems to me that when you begin to think about those words... And you think about how they fit together, that maybe they don't really make us very excited. In fact, let's just do this. Let's just read all of them together, and then we'll, just, we'll chop them up real quick. The beautiful thing about eight points in a sermon is they have to go really fast. So if you're going to take notes, you better get ready. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Participating in the joy of the God are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but, but it seems to me that, uh, I would, that I get up in the morning and I have an expectation that I'm going to have a better day than I had yesterday. I'm going to do better. I don't know that the day's going to go better. I just mean I'm going to be in a better mood. I'm going to have a better attitude. How many of you wake up intending to have a better attitude? Good. What's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> and then so then I, I think, okay, I, I can do this. I can do this. I can make it happen. I can be focused. I can be centered. I can, I can make it happen today. I'm going to stay positive and optimistic. I'm going to make it all go to, and I don't know, we have good days and bad days, don't we? But right here at the outset, if you're going to engage in a gracious spirit and you want to be a gracious citizen and you're going to do gracious living, it begins with a poor, someone who is poor in spirit, meaning I don't have what it's going to take to accomplish what I think I need to accomplish. I, I'm poor in spirit. I, I'm not adequate. I don't have the resource I need inside of here to do everything that I need to do. I'm not going to have the spirit to control all the mental things and the emotional things and spiritual things. And I don't know about you, but I feel the pressure in my culture, in my world, of, of figuring it out. That I'm going to figure it out and one day I'm going to have a spirit in me that can cope. That can navigate, that is adequate for all the needs. And Jesus says, just so you know, participating in the joy of the gods are those who have decided they are poor in spirit. I don't have what it takes. I have a kind of bankruptcy when it comes to resource. I don't know, how many of you have been, you don't have to raise your hands for this. This is a... It's kind of a rhetorical. How many of you have really been poor? Yes. You know. So, uh, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a family that had much money, but I wouldn't say we were poor. You know, we had everything we needed. I, the, the time I remember really being poor was in graduate school. <laughs> where you just, you literally did not have enough money to live. You literally knew that at the end of the month, you hoped and prayed for the miracle. Because you knew that you were not making enough money to cover the necessities. The, just the necessities. And I find when you live like that for three years, it's good to have rich friends. <laughs> Amen? I mean, I mean, you know, you're, after, you're hanging out after church and you're thinking, I'd like to go to lunch, but I'm broke. I can stand beside these other students at seminary who are also broke, or I can stand beside these people over here who have jobs. <laughs> One is smarter than the other. And when you're poor like that, you know, and somebody says, hey, can we buy you dinner? Yes, you can. <laughs> That's the idea here. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. 
who understand that God is the wealthy friend who provides, whose strength is made perfect in our weakness. There's an underlying thought here, and that is those who are poor in spirit don't fight, they don't wrestle, they don't negotiate, they don't argue with God. They see a bankruptcy in spirit that can only be adequately met by the power of God. And they live here. I'm not adequate. I'm poor in spirit. I need help. I need help. Oh, the blessedness of those who are poor in spirit. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who are poor in spirit. Number two, participating in the joy of the gods are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the logical next step. The logical next step is that you and I are blessed when we mourn our responsibility in the dysfunction. That's not my tendency. My tendency is to mourn the responsibility of others in the dysfunction. My tendency is to mourn the dysfunction of the culture in the process. My tendency is to mourn the politics of the world in the dysfunction. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn their own dysfunction, who wake up in the morning and say, I am poor in spirit, and I am sad that I don't bring everything to it that I could or should or need to. I am mourning my dysfunction in the process. I'm mourning my responsibility and not making the world a better place. I struggle here. I see what I could do better. I see what God is inviting me to. I see how he wants me to think, how the emotional things should work, how my acts of compassion and care should work. Whoever wants to be greatest should be the servant of all. They will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. I see all of that. I, I get it. And I, I'm not pushing it on others. I'm not assessing what other people are doing. I have learned to mourn, not only for my own inadequacies, but for my own failures, for my own sin. I am taking seriously the call and the responsibility I have. Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. I don't know about you, but there's a kind of humility in there. Remember the definition of graciousness? There's a kind of humility in that. That Don't you like to be around people like that? Not that are down and overwhelmed. and uh, uh, Not that. But who simply say, how can I help? I'm responsible in this space. It's not about you. It's about me. It's about me helping. It's about me finding. It's about me searching. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're not left in that place. Participating in the joy of the gods are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's not any one of these beatitudes that jazzes us quite like this one. I mean, I have seen a t-shirt that says the meek don't want it, <laughs> but, but I don't know that that's the same thing as embracing the meaning of the passage. <laughs> Blessed are the meek, and the word here is praus. Now, whoever decided to translate the word praus, meek, must have known something that we don't know now because that word meek doesn't really fit the translation very well. We know prouse is a word that Aristotle used frequently, in fact, coined the word, and it means the middle ground between extremes. It means that virtue lies in the middle ground. Blessed are those who 
live in the virtue of the middle ground. Now remember, we're talking about kingdom life and kingdom citizenship. And there's a progression of thought. Blessed are the poor in spirit, are those who know that they have a need for God in His presence and His leadership, who don't feel adequate in and of themselves, who mourn their own responsibility, and who seek the middle ground between extremes. We talked last week about intergenerational life and ministry. What ties the generations together? This ties the generations together. The belief that the truth lies somewhere between our generations. I think this works well when you think about parents and children. Now, understand this is a principle, which means not every time something happens is the middle ground the truth. But as a principle, it is. And Aristotle was pretty specific. This is a definition of virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is the middle ground. And so when you stop and you think about between parents and children, sometimes you think, okay, this is how parents see things, which has its kind of truth, and this is how children see things. And sometimes it's really important that we say, well, the virtue is probably somewhere between us. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> but sometimes it is, and with our generations. What do older people bring to this conversation? Conventional wisdom. What's conventional wisdom? This is the way we've always done it. This is best practice. This is what always works. And you'd do good to learn it. <laughs> and what do young people bring? Critical wisdom. Why do you do it that way? That's dumb. <laughs> Amen? Both have wisdom, don't they? And where does the truth lie? Somewhere between them. So when our generations interact, we say, you know what? The truth lies somewhere between how you see the world and how I see the world. The truth is not how I see the world, but it's not how you see the world either. And so what a profound thing. Jesus says, participating in the joy of the gods are those who find the middle ground. Are those who, who line up in a way. And when you think about that and apply it across the board in our culture. We, we live in a culture that understands it's winner take all. My side won. Let's eliminate the other side. Listen. If you put a name on this in our modern culture, guess what it would be called? Bipartisanship. <laughs> now many of us don't know what that means because we've never seen it. Amen? And yet we know the truth of it. We know the truth of that. It's not about eliminating something. It's about finding this middle. If you want to be a gracious person living a kingdom life, these are kingdom principles spoken from the mouth of Christ. Blessed are you if you have poor in spirit. Listen, when you get over here and you talk about meekness and finding the middle ground, I can't tell you how many times people come back over here and surrender their poor spirit. No, we don't want to find the middle ground. We want to be right. <laughs> yes, but you must be poor in spirit. <laughs> poor in spirit requires humility. I can only see what I can see. I can only understand what I can understand. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. I want to take responsibility for me. I'm not blaming. I'm taking responsibility. Blessed are though the meek who find this middle ground. Blessed are those... Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Um, I know that NFL football kicked off about 52 minutes ago, and I, God bless you all for recording and uh, waiting for later. 
today, I'm sure probably already an hour into the first game, you know, there's already been a challenge flag thrown. That's killing the game, isn't it? Just killing the game. I know you're all wondering where this is going. Just stay with me for a minute. <laughs> Believe it or not, it has something to do with the Greek. Because what happens out there in the football game is, you know, something happens and, and the, you know, one team or the other, truth's in the middle, but one team or the other says, oh, that was, a, that was an atrocious call. And the other team goes, no, that was, that was good. So now you have this opportunity in the NFL, if you're the, you know, the offended party, you get to throw a flag, a challenge flag. Hey, I was done a disservice in this moment. <laughs> and they stop the game and they pull out the videotape. No, they don't. They pull out the digital media. <laughs> <laughs> there is no videotape. <laughs> and uh, some young people are going, what's he talking about? And they review it. They call the umpire out and they say, stick your head in this box and look at it and then come back and give us a ruling about what was right and what was wrong. Believe it or not, that's what the Greek is right here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are calling in an official to make a ruling on righteousness. Blessed are those who day after day, moment by moment, say, I'm not adequate to make this ruling on my own. I need to bring in an official who will make a ruling on this righteousness thing. And I hunger after that like a starving person. I thirst for it. I'm not dependent on my own opinion and perspective. I'm dependent on bringing, and the language here reflects official, umpire, uh, referee, it, 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 a judge. It reflects all of those things. Blessed are those who are seeking this sort of outside help to understand righteousness, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We need that kind of help, don't we? I'm poor in spirit. I mourn my own responsibility. I seek the middle ground. I am letting God make a ruling in the righteous processes and choices of my life and journey and relationships. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who are merciful I tell you, when you are poor in spirit and you have a spirit that mourns your own responsibility and you seek the middle ground, believing the truth lies between you and others, and you are constantly hungering and thirsting for God to rule on righteousness in the different ways, thoughts, processes, choices, emotions, relationships, conflict, whatever it is, then it becomes very easy to show mercy to others. Amen? I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I thought the Beatitudes were like a menu and you just picked. Okay, well, I'll do two and four. Because <laughs> I don't really jive with three and six. They don't, uh, they don't fit my personality. <laughs> it turns out these are the teachings of the gracious life of the kingdom. And they're really not a menu. They actually have a nice progression to them and a logic to them. And when we live in this place of giving up our striving, being poor in spirit understanding our need for God and His presence in us. We mourn our own responsibility. We seek middle ground. We, we invite a ruling in the difficult times. We hunger and thirst for righteousness in all situations. Man, it's easy to be merciful to others. And this thing called mercy is not just about, you know, at the end of the day of striving and talking and, blah, blah, blah. well, they're doing the best they can, I guess. Might as well show them mercy. It's not really the idea here. The idea here is more like this. 
I want to leave people in a light in every conversation in which they are benefited. I don't want to talk about people, and I don't want to think about people, which, by the way, are interrelated. I mean, as if we could say, well, I think terrible of others, but I just don't talk about it. I don't think that's really what he's going for here. (laughs) I think he wants us to actually have mercy for others. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me it's way easier to be merciful with people you don't know than people you do know. And it's way easier to be merciful with people that don't live in your house than it is with people that do live in your house or are in your family. Well, probably your spouse's family, but. (laughs) And the middle ground, you know, the truth lies in the middle ground between you. But I, I think that reality of, Am I a person of mercy? Do I think, do I think well of others? Do I, do I think beneficial of others? Do I, do I grant mercy to them over and over and over? I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to see things or wonder about things or see a facial expression or read a text message, and then that leads to the motive behind it and the attitude. Well, first it's the attitude, isn't it? You know, here's a text message. Let me read it to you. Well, hello, how are you? Can you believe they said that? None of you do that, do you? I mean, inflection is everything when you're reading that. <laughs> I mean, my kids will read me text messages, and I'm going, they, they, ask, they, they ask how your day was going. I don't, I don't think there was anything going on there. You know? But we do that, don't we? We hear something, and then we attach an attitude to it, and then we attach a motive. They're always like that. <laughs> Listen, that's not very merciful. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who show mercy. Leave people in a light. Don't walk around with suspicions of others. Participating in the joy of the gods are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Most of us are like, yeah, I'm tapping out on that one. I'm not a pure in heart person. Thankfully, inside the understanding is not that we're perfect, but that we are pursuing a purity of heart. John Wesley described it like this. That you and I are invited into a place where we allow God to do work in us and speak to be the referee in our hearts and minds and spirits and, and, and to say, I think here's an attitude that needs to be surrendered. I think here's a practice that needs to be presented. Here's some words that I don't think you should say anymore. And Wesley would say, the Holy Spirit does very specific work in us. He doesn't say, hey, there's some things in your heart I'm not sure I like, so why don't you figure that out? <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, hey, what you just did, no, that's not good. Are you willing to let that go? This means, yes, I'm willing to let it go. Pure in heart are, yes. Yes, you can have that attitude. Yes, you can have that behavior. Yes, I I haven't gotten it done yet. I'm still, this is not the first time I've had to surrender this act. It's not the first time I've had to surrender this habit. It's not the first time I've had to surrender, but it's surrendered. I know I'm a work in progress, and I know that I'm poor in spirit, so I know that this is a collaborative effort, but I just want you to know I'm still saying yes. My pure in heart is yes. It's a yes, it's a yes, it's a yes. I'm in this process and I'm staying in it. Blessed are the pure in heart. And by the way, Wesley said, at some point I theoretically understand that as I, as I displace, as the love of God begins to displace all of the things, one day all of that stuff in my heart will be gone and I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think it'll happen soon after I die. But the pure in heart seek it. 
Amen? We seek it. Blessed, participating in the joy of the gods are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. It is a gracious part of living to be a person who reconciles and lives in a conciliatory spirit. It is a part of kingdom life. Of all the people on the planet that ought to be folks that bring around a kind of peace, it ought to be kingdom people. Amen? And I understand that some personality types are more prone to be contrarian than other personality types, which, by the way, just so we don't get too self-righteous, you know, that there are people over here on this passive side who actually aren't, they're actually not just peaceable. They just don't want to create conflict. They're conflict-averse. So they just go, yeah, I'm passive. I'm just passive. Let's use the virtue conversation. Being passive and indifferent or being full of conflict, the virtue lies in the middle of these two extremes over here. But even if you're a contrarian personality, the things you see in that contrary position can be presented in a peaceable way. And if you're indifferent, you need to wake up. Because that's not peace, that's indifference. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of goodness. And it's very important. Blessed are those. Are we, that, are we those people? Is that what we're doing? Is that what we wake up in the morning and go, you know what, today I'm pursuing peace. I'm a peacemaker. I'm looking to bring things together. I'm a reconciler. I live in a conciliatory spirit. That's what comes out of me when I speak. Those are the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who are peacemakers. Participating in the joy of the gods are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is just saying, you should know this. Doing the right thing is costly. In fact, in other places, Jesus is going to teach, hey, the people of this world have a big advantage over the people of the kingdom because they can lie and cheat. <laughs> And you know what? Lying and cheating is easier than having to constantly do the right thing because doing the right thing will get you into situations that are hard. So blessed are those who do the hard thing anyway. That's what he's saying. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness, for doing the right thing, for doing it over and over and over and over, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult even when it's costly at a personal level, because that's gracious living. That's gracious living. And now, as Jesus begins to conclude this sermon, we jump to the very end, chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on solid rock. We've been having this conversation about value and virtue. So here we talk about all these things, these eight Beatitudes. By the way, there are nine Beatitudes uh, but the last two, as I said at the beginning, they sort of get molded together. Or maybe I said it last service, or maybe I didn't say it at all. <laughs> but the last two get molded together. Uh, so we really talk about the eight in its totality. Whoever hears these words of mine and gives intellectual assent will be deeply blessed. That's not what he says at the conclusion of the sermon. Whoever hears these words of mine and 
takes these values and turns them into virtues, puts them into practice in daily life, is like a wise person who builds their house on solid rock. When the winds come, the house will stand firm. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, like a foolish person that builds their house on sand, because when the storm comes, the house will collapse. You will be blessed if you do these things. So for you and I, we're invited into this place of a gracious spirit. And it's a lot. It's a lot of content. But it fits together. I think the challenge is for you and I that in these next few weeks, we're entering into a little finishing school. We're going we're gonna to study hard. <laughs> we're going to commit ourselves to be gracious people. And this week, we're going to practice a gracious spirit. God, would you help us? In these closing moments, perhaps as we've talked about these elements, you've spoken some convicting words. Would you please allow us time to respond? In these next few moments, some of us will respond just singing and participating in this closing moment of worship. Just for others, know there are prayer counselors around the room. You can seek them out and have a time of prayer. God, in whatever way we respond, in whatever way we feel the conviction to move forward into the next step, to take the value and make it a virtue, would you speak? We don't want to miss opportunities. The prompting of your Holy Spirit is a precious thing not to be taken for granted. May we write down and speak to others about the challenge you've placed in our hearts as these words have unfolded today. And may we take those next steps. Lead us and guide us, and as you do that, and we're going to give you praise. Hear our responses, we pray in Jesus' name. Will you stand as we respond to his word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.